DW Inside Europe Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's programme, it's official. The RFD's youth wing is a right-wing extremist organisation. The Federal Office for the Protection of the Constitution, or Germany's Domestic Intelligence Agency, is essentially saying that the youth wing of the AFD, that's Germany's far-right party in Parliament, that they are far-right extremists. Is it legitimate? Low turnout raises urgent questions about North Kosovan elections. Also on Inside Europe, Outside Challenger, we profile the man shaking up the Turkish election race. And back again, why the Pope will be staying a little longer in Hungary this time round. Those stories and more coming up on the programme. This week, Germany's Federal Office for the Protection of the Constitution, Verfassungsschutz, announced that after four years of observation, it had found the youth wing of Germany's AfD, or Alternative for Deutschland Party, together with two other AfD-linked organisations, to be right-wing extremist entities actively working against the German constitution. The AfD, itself currently under observation from the Verfassungsschutz, reacted with indignation to what it regards as a politically motivated move. Germany's Minister for the Interior, Nancy Faeser, however, was clear. Das Bundesamt für Verfassungsschutz ist unser wichtigstes Frühwarnsystem. The Federal Office for the Protection of the Constitution, she says, is our most important early warning system. The hatred sown by these organizations leads not infrequently to violence. That is why we are proceeding so decisively against these networks. To find out more about this decision, I spoke to DW's political correspondent, Thomas Sparrow, who began by setting out some useful context. So it is significant because the Verfassungsschutz is actually Germany's domestic intelligence agency and its main goal, or at least one of its main goals, is to identify organizations in Germany that can go against the German basic law or the German constitution. And by doing this right now, the Federal Office for the Protection of the Constitution or Germany's domestic intelligence agency is essentially saying that the youth wing of the AFD, that's Germany's far-right party in parliament, that they are far-right extremists. They've got examples to prove that, to show that. They've actually already since January 2019, I think, they had classified this youth organization as a suspected case and had begun observing it. And now they have confirmed it, basically saying that the indications of efforts against the free, democratic, basic order have now become certain. What this means in practice is that the domestic intelligence agency can now use basically everything at its disposal to observe this youth wing of the AFD. That means that they can have informants, they can tap into phones using the full instrumentarium, if you will, without as many limits as they had previously when the organization was only a suspected case. Now, the AFD, Thomas, is a relatively young party, but already it's been through various cycles of, well, I heard one expert describe it as mutation, but I think radicalization is probably the word we're looking at. Can you talk to me a little bit about its trajectory? A way in which you can see this is in its leadership struggles. The AFD has had plenty of leadership struggles, and as soon 
as one of the AFD leaders tries to become a little more mainstream, a whole leadership contest ensues. And it's normally the case that that politician that tends to be more mainstream has to then leave. That has happened with Frauke Petri, that has happened with Jörg Moiten, that has happened also with several of the founders of the AFD 10 years ago, which is basically a reason why members that have followed the AFD very closely, so politicians who have followed the AFD very closely, but also people who know a lot about intelligence have basically said that the AFD is becoming more and more extremist. And okay, there are differences between different parts of the AFD. You may not see that at the federal level as much as you do so if you look into local AFD politics, or regional AFD politics. But basically what's being said is that these extremist views within the AFD are becoming more prevalent and even within the party are much more difficult to combat. So we now have a situation, Thomas, where we have a democratically elected party in Parliament whose youth wing has been proven to be actively working against the democratic rule of law. Not only that, it's being fed intellectually by a think tank which has also been classed as right-wing extremist. I mean, where does this go? What what are the consequences? So the AFD as such already in the past has basically said that these decisions are politically motivated, that they are unfair. And in fact, in certain cases, they have also tried to go legally against these decisions. So that's basically the view from the AFD, again, presenting itself, if you will, as a sort of victim, as the establishment is against the AFD. But for other parties, it's also particularly relevant in the German Bundestag, in the German parliament, for example, and I'm sitting not far away from the German parliament now, you have different committees and different groups of parliamentarians that meet to discuss classified information on highly relevant issues, like, for example, Germany's security. And the AFD, as a democratically elected party in the German parliament, has the right to be in some of those groups, in some of those committees. And as such, there is concern from some of Germany's other parties that you may have politicians from the AFD in these highly relevant committees that, however, as you say, are being fed intellectually by groups within the party that are now deemed to be extremist. So this certainly has implications not only for the AFD as a party and how the AFD is viewed in Germany, but also to the work that parliamentarians in the German Bundestag are doing that in many cases is work that first and foremost is confidential, that first and foremost is relevant for them to make then decisions in terms of national security, for example. So we have to view it twofold, the impact that it might have for the AFD and the impact that it may have also for other parties that have to work in one way or another with the AFD. It's important to stress that the AFD has been in the German parliament since 2017. They managed to get again into the German parliament in the elections in 2021. And most other parties, all other parties that are elected in the German parliament have vowed to not work with the AFD. That makes any kind of dealings in the German parliament extremely difficult if you have a party like the AFD in the German parliament. DW's political correspondent, Thomas Sparrow there. Political legitimacy is also in question in our next story. 
Next week, Serbia's president, Aleksandar Vucic, will head to Brussels to discuss the normalisation of Serbia's relationship with Kosovo, his hand having been significantly strengthened by this week's elections in the Serb-majority North Kosovo regions. Following Serbian institutions' calls for a boycott, turnout in the elections was historically low, with little more than 3% of the overall population coming out to vote. Here's our Balkans correspondent, Guy Delaunay. The camera crews and journalists outnumbered the voters at this polling station in North Kosovo as mayoral elections got underway. Turnout in some polling stations could be counted on the fingers of one hand. The main reason behind the dearth of voters was a boycott by ethnic Serb parties. And people from the Serb communities in North Kosovo were not impressed by the determination of Kosovo's majority Albanian government to press ahead with the vote. I despise everyone who votes in these elections, says this man. A lot of insecurity and desperation is making people boycott these elections, adds another local resident. In the end, just over 3% of the electorate voted, and the four majority Serb municipalities in North Kosovo now find themselves with ethnic Albanian mayors. It seems like an untenable situation, but Kosovo's Prime Minister Albin Kurti insists the root of the problem lies with Serbia's government in Belgrade. We have four new mayors now. I wish them well and I promise the government will support and help them. Criminal elements on the ground in the north of Kosovo carried out a campaign of blackmail, intimidation and threats, which resulted in a low turnout of citizens. I am sorry that certain parties have called for a boycott. The call is not theirs, the call is Belgrade's. Now I expect that the institutions will be consolidated there and serve the citizens as much as possible without distinction. In fact, the election boycott was a continuation of last year's protests by Kosovo Serbs. They were angry about Kosovo's efforts to force them to surrender their Serbian-issued vehicle license plates. Boycotting the mayoral elections was designed to highlight another issue. Despite an EU-brokered agreement ten years ago, Kosovo's refused to set up an association of majority Serb municipalities with limited autonomy. Serbia's president, Aleksandar Vucic, said he was pleased to see Kosovo Serbs standing up for their rights. Yesterday, the Serbian people in Kosovo carried out a peaceful political uprising, demonstrating their refusal to accept imposed solutions, oppression, mistreatment, and being wounded and shot at in exchange for mere praise from Brussels or Washington. And that wasn't all. Mr Vucic also voiced his anger with the EU and the United States, accusing them of misleading Serbia in normalisation talks with Kosovo. Serbs haven't been heard by you in 10 years. I've been pleading with you to listen to them and hear their voice for 10 years, but you failed to do so. I didn't sign anything with you because for 10 years you've been spouting nonsense and lying to me and our delegation about our negotiations for six years. I could sense that you were cheating and lying. 
The situation certainly doesn't seem very normal, despite the EU trumpeting a fresh normalisation agreement between Serbia and Kosovo just last month. So, where does that leave the tens of thousands of Serbs who live in North Kosovo? They're often portrayed as a monolith in political rhetoric and media coverage alike, but in fact there are usually multiple shades of opinion about the authorities in Belgrade and Pristina. This time, though, pretty much everyone agrees on how they feel about Kosovo's Prime Minister, Albin Kurti. Now you have a very uniform position coming in from all sides, from Srpskalista, which is the biggest party, from the political opposition, and then you have civil society as well that is actually very vocal, and then you have the general community, and they're all uniform in the position. What Kurti is doing is really bad. Jovan Avradosavljevic is the executive director of New Social Initiative. Her organization supports normalizing relations between Kosovo and Serbia and building trust between Serbs and Albanians. What I think we really need to see is really a 180-degree turn coming in from Pristina to really start working in a meaningful manner to rebuild this trust with the community and actually uh, going back to implementing that what's already there that this is owed to this community as well. And I speak about the associations and majority municipalities. But it doesn't seem like anyone's in the mood for turning at the moment. Mutual recriminations between Pristina and Belgrade have been rumbling for most of the past month. It could make for a lively meeting between Serbia's president and Kosovo's prime minister in Brussels in the coming week. Guy Delorne, DW, Ljubljana. Turkey is now just weeks away from elections that pose the biggest challenge yet to President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's more than two decades of rule. With the economy in crisis and growing criticism of his response to the devastating earthquakes which hit the south of the country earlier this year, many opinion polls have been showing the incumbent lagging behind his primary opposition challenger. But now, the emergence of an outlier candidate whose fiery populist rhetoric is drawing parallels with Donald Trump is threatening to split the opposition vote, offering Erdogan a lifeline. Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul. Mohem Inja is rallying the voters. Here it is striking workers. Inja vows to stand up against big businesses, both domestically and internationally, claiming to be a friend of the working person. With the country suffering economically, his fiery nationalist rhetoric appears to be striking a chord, says Sezin Erner, a columnist at PolitikYol News Portal. He's reflecting something new in Turkey, this new wave of populism. And more so than him, there is this anger towards the system. He is not saying anything new or providing an ideology, an alternative, something, even a kernel of an ideology, but he's just angry. I think what he reflects is the anger of a certain portion of the electorate. Inja's campaign is seen as threatening to split the opposition vote against President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Erdogan's main rival, Kamal Kılıçdaroğlu, leader of the main opposition centre-left CHP party, has built a broad alliance of six parties, including the religious and secular, which made him the front-runner, according to many opinion polls. But analysts say Inja is targeting alienated opposition voters. 
Osman Sert, director of Panorama TR Research Company. It is important. Cholesterol is trying to pull CHP to the center and make it a more, you know, comprehensive party. There's a hardliner, secularist, Sunni and nationalist, ultra-nationalist group is feeling as betrayed. They do not want to sit the table with the, you know, conservative, with the Islamists. Inge's candidature is widely seen as having a strong element of political payback. In the last presidential election, he was the candidate of the main opposition, CHP. But in the aftermath of his defeat, he fell out with Kılıçdaroğlu, accusing him of betrayal. Now some opinion polls indicate Inge's support is over 10% with his campaign making effective use of social media platforms. Adverts like this one accuse the main candidates of hypocrisy and lies. Parallels already being drawn with the likes of other populist leaders worldwide, says Gurkan Bicici, editor-in-chief of the Dokuz Sekiz Haber online news agency. We know about these dynamics from the U.S. and elsewhere. The Trump era, Bolsonaro in Brazil and Orban in Hungary are fed by similar dynamics. But at the end of the day, the ballot box is very important for Turkish society. People may attend a dissident candidate's rally, but they vote for the strongest one at the ballot box. Some analysts suggest Inge's campaign could prevent any candidate from securing an absolute majority and forcing the country to a second round, says Sezin Erner of Politikyol News Portal. It can be a big factor in leaving the elections to the second round, and then you never know. Anything might happen. With only a few weeks to go before the election, expectations of a runoff are growing. That will be a welcome development for Erdogan and a cause for concern for his main challenger. Dorian Jones, DW, Istanbul. And our coverage of the Turkish elections will continue next week ahead of the crucial vote on May 14th. To make sure that you don't miss it, why not subscribe to our podcast? I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. be back, said, uh, well, the Pope in this instance, and Hungary has held him to his word. Pope Francis's much-anticipated visit to Budapest follows a previous visit two years ago, which was so brief it was seen as a deliberate snub. To find out more, I spoke to our Budapest correspondent, Stefan Boss. Yes, it was indeed a snub, uh, Kate. Uh, Basically, this is the continuation of his closing mass at the massive 52nd International Eucharistic Congress in Budapest that happened in the summer of 2021. And I recall there were really tens of thousands of people there. I mean, it was a huge crowd. And of course, uh, he was there, but he was only very shortly in Hungary, about uh, seven hours 
hours or so, and then he immediately went to neighboring Slovakia, where he was about 70 hours, so 10 times as long as he went to Hungary. And that, of course, was because, uh, according to several sources, the Pope was quite upset about the way the Hungarian government treated migrants fleeing persecution, poverty and other hardships. But I think the Pope uh, views it now as a better moment to visit Hungary for a longer time. Well, indeed. And in fact, geographically speaking, this trip will bring the Pope the closest that he has come yet to war-torn Ukraine. So presumably that's going to be a pretty big discussion topic for the Pope when he meets the Hungarian government. Indeed, it's only a few hundred kilometers from the border. So that's also what the Vatican wants to point out, that this is also a nod towards uh, Kiev that has often backed for a papal visit. But of course, uh, the Vatican is saying for security reasons, but also quite honestly, because the Pope at the moment is uh, very frail. So that's the reason why he doesn't go to Kiev uh, now. But they want to show Kiev that they are thinking about Ukraine, that the Pope feels very close to Ukraine. And I expect that it will be an important part of his trip to talk about Ukraine and the peace he seeks uh, for that country. Of course, for him, it's also important to see a ceasefire. And I have to say that on this issue, Hungary and the Vatican see more eye to eye, I would say, because um, even the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has said that he thinks the, the Vatican and Hungary are the remaining powers that really want to push for a ceasefire in Ukraine and peace. Uh, Hungary, for instance, is also not uh, providing weapons uh, to Ukraine and so on. And I think that view is shared by the Pope as well. Well, so much for the Pope and politics. But what about papal spiritual priorities, Stefan? What are they going to be? I think what he wants to show is uh, it's very important, uh, the inclusion of the vulnerable. He will meet, for instance, uh, disadvantaged children. He will also visit uh, refugees uh, and so on. And although the government can now say, yes, uh, Pope Francis is uh, coming to Hungary, it's definitely also a time, I think, that will be used by Francis to show it remains important to reach out to those in need, including refugees of non-Western countries, uh, such as uh, Syria, Afghanistan, and wherever they may be. Our Budapest correspondent, Stefan Boss, there. If you have any comments or ideas for the show, then please do write to us. Our address is insideeurope at dw.com. You can, of course, also subscribe to our podcast. And whilst you're at it, why not check out our sister programme, Living Planet? Many of our countries are experiencing extreme weather patterns. I think the game is over, you know. Because it's happening more and more and it's no longer this futuristic, hypothetical thing. You realise that, you know, this isn't a long, slow evolution of change. This is rapid. Living Planet with Charlie Shield and Sam Baker. Environment stories from around the world. And you can only take so much out of the bank until there's nothing left in the bank. And what did you here? Our monkeys were about to disappear before there were loads. No other animal there steps up to fill its role. They start to then disappear too. We don't even know all the species of wild bees that there are. Once the real ferns die, the last real swamps dry up. 
will we enter spaces that hold only digital memories of nature? Also, disabled people have to be recognized in sustainability. Usually, it doesn't happen. I think the Gen Z is pissed, actually. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. We have an intrigue-packed half hour coming up for you. Expect to hear from Russian dissidents, North Sea spy ships and Scandinavian fact-checkers. We are very fortunate to be fact-checkers in Scandinavia and in Europe at all because our fellow fact-checkers around the world are being prosecuted, are being challenged by the government, are being jailed uh, for doing their work and in some countries, even killed for doing their work. That's all still to come. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. Since the war in Ukraine started, at least half a million Russians have left the country, many of them to the small neighbouring country of Georgia, where they don't need a visa. And, as Levi Bridges reports, their arrival is creating both tension and opportunities in the Georgian capital, Tbilisi. After Russia invaded Ukraine, lots of Russian activists started fleeing the country, because just speaking out against the conflict is a crime in Russia. But Ivan Drobatov, a Russian activist who works at the Anti-Corruption Foundation, an organization started by Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, knew that he wanted to stay. The activists in Russia would get demoralized every time one of us left, so it was important for me to remain in Russia and keep working for as long as possible, even though I saw staying in Russia was getting more dangerous. But Drobatov was eventually arrested and held in detention for 20 days because he urged people to come to anti-war rallies on social media. After he was released, Russian authorities launched a criminal case against Drobatov and put a bracelet on him with a tracking device. I understood that it would be impossible to keep working or help anyone like that. I was the person that needed help. Drobatov decided to cut off the tracking bracelet and flee to Tbilisi, where he and I met in a cafe. At least 100,000 Russians have moved to Georgia since the war started. Rents in Tbilisi have skyrocketed. Having so many Russians here really irritates some Georgians. Walking through the streets in downtown Tbilisi, there's a lot of anti-Russian graffiti written on the buildings. Most of it is not appropriate to say on the radio. Here, somebody has written, Putin war criminal, exclamation point. Georgians wholeheartedly do not support the war. Most Russians here are on the same page. 
At a cafe in Tbilisi, I meet a man from St. Petersburg named Grigory Sverdlin, who started an organization here that assists Russians who want to avoid military service. His organization has volunteers that help men escape Russia and avoid fighting in Ukraine. Fortunately, Russia has really long borders and it's not possible to watch all of them. So there are a lot of forests, a lot of rivers, which are easy to cross. Sverdlin used to run a charity in Russia. He left because he was so vocal about his opposition to the war that he feared the Russian government might close his organization down. He didn't want to abandon his work in Russia, but then he realized coming to Georgia was an opportunity. I was really stressed, but then I understood that I can help people to avoid this war, and uh, this also is my chance to strike back these criminal authorities of Russia. Sverdlin says that he hasn't had any negative interactions with Georgians here. He says the war in Ukraine is actually creating something positive for Georgia. I'm pretty sure that this country are pretty lucky getting such immigrants because people moved their businesses to these countries, well, started to pay taxes here. And I'm pretty sure that in long term, it's for the best. Georgia is a much freer country than Russia, but the freedoms Russians enjoy in Tbilisi can't be taken for granted. Last month, thousands of Georgians took to the streets to protest a proposed law that would have required Georgian organizations that receive foreign funding to register as foreign agents. The law, which many Georgians called the Russian law, is similar to legislation in Russia that has made it harder for independent media outlets to operate. Georgia's ruling political party withdrew the bill, but many Georgians fear the government is backsliding and becoming closer to Russia. But even in this environment, Russians are leading successful lives and contributing to Georgia's economic growth. Georgia's economy grew by 10% last year, in part because so many Russians are moving here, spending money and opening businesses. Here they've seen in the evenings, so it's quite a nice place. Across town, 23-year-old Nikita Holopov gives me a tour of a new business cooperative founded by young Russian entrepreneurs in an old office building. In one room, they hold concerts. In another, Holopov opened a small movie theater. How many people can you fit in here? 25. Holopov says he has no plans to go back to Russia as long as Putin is president. And he loves living in Georgia. But he says lots of Russians don't see a future here either. The majority of the people would like to go further somewhere in Europe to a richer country. They see Georgia as a temporary destination. But for me, I would like to stay here if I can find a good job. As we talk, young Russians enter the building for a concert. A Russian man picks up a guitar and plays the song Country Roads by the American musician John Denver about driving home after being away on a long trip. It's a fitting song for a group of Russians who are missing their homeland. Levi Bridges, DW, Tbilisi, Georgia.
There is a man in Russia so feared by the Kremlin that it is rumoured that Vladimir Putin has forbidden his name to be used in his presence. That man is, of course, Alexei Navalny, the opposition politician and anti-corruption activist who, having narrowly survived an assassination attempt via Novichok poisoning in 2020, returned to Russia, where he was promptly arrested, tried on embezzlement charges and sent to a penal colony. Every now and again, the public gets glimpses of Navalny when he appears via courtroom video link, often to answer additional charges or challenge additional punishments. This week, the stakes were the highest yet, with Navalny appearing at a preliminary hearing to decide on his access to materials needed to fight new extremism charges, which he said could see him face life in jail. Pale and gaunt in his prison overalls, he's said to have lost eight kilos in just 16 days during his latest bout of solitary confinement. Navalny was nevertheless still able to flash his trademark smile and even joke around with reporters before his mic was muted. It was a compelling appearance and it left me wondering, as so often before, just who is Alexei Navalny really and what drives him? In order to help me answer those questions, I turned to Morvan Lalouette, co-author of the book Navalny, Putin's Nemesis, Russia's Future. The way we try to summarise a bit who is Navalny in our book is by looking at three, three directions of his works. The first is the fight against corruption, to which he brought both innovative investigation methods alongside a team of very dedicated and very competent investigators. And also what made his breakthrough to the Russian political scene is his way of marketing his investigation of putting them first into very snappy, very funny, sharp blog posts, then putting them into YouTube. And so this is kind of the breakthrough of Navalny to Russian political scene. And the second dimension we talk a lot about is the Navalny as a politician. And Navalny, again, is a man who has a very long career in politics because he first joined a political party and started to be some sort of political operative more than 20 years ago. And he's had a very long and complex career, starting from the traditional liberal, Russian liberals to much more controversial political projects and ideas. So this is the part of his life in the mid-2000s where he was active in the nationalist movement in Russia, so parts of them that he has now moved forward from. And the last part is the way he used protest movements in Russia to make the political agenda and using his investigations and the anger they created as a catalyst for political demonstration for protest in Russia. And so these are one of the three big dimensions, I would say, of who is Alexei Navalny. Yeah, two sides to Navalny. I feel like we've been talking a lot about sort of Navalny's of the past, but I wanted to sort of come up to date. I mean, what can we say with confidence about the Navalny now in 2023, after imprisonment, after the launch of the full-scale invasion in Ukraine. Who is he now? 
The first thing is that obviously I talked to Navalny as someone against uh, who fights against corruption as a politician, as a protester, and obviously he's none of this now. And this is the obvious consequence of returning to Russia, where, as you said, uh, the likelihood of him being arrested is very high. So now his time is obviously limited and is made extremely painful by the conditions he's in, in prison in Russia. He also has to spend time on his defense because he's facing multiple charges, charges that are actually escalating because he's in jail for alleged embezzlement. Then he was sent to jail too for slandering a World War II veteran. Now we're talking about extremism in Russia, which is an extremely serious charge that carries dozens of years in prison. And now he could face charges for terrorism. Again, dozens of years in prison or possibly a lifetime of imprisonment. What has maintained him in the public sphere is that he's able to communicate with the outside world through his lawyers, his supporters and friends can also write to him in prison. So obviously it's a long process that takes weeks. And yeah, so he still is present in the uh, public sphere, but obviously in a very, very reduced capacity. Morvan Laloet is co-author of Navalny, Putin's nemesis, Russia's Future, which is out with Hearst Publishers in the UK and Oxford University Press in the US. It's also available as an audiobook, which I can highly recommend. Now, prepare yourselves for the salty tang of maritime intrigue as we turn next to a new documentary co-created by national broadcasters in Denmark, Finland, Norway and Sweden. The film examines the dual lives of Russian fishing trawlers allowed to sail in the North Sea and dock at Norwegian ports. Terry Schultz reports on the year-long investigation that found the vessels casting their nets for much more than just fish. They're being called ghost ships because they sail through the North Sea silently, as in they turn off the required transponders that allow communication and tracking of their movements. But these ships, which bill themselves as fishing trawlers or research vessels, are not navigated by spirits. They've got full crews on board, standing guard with rifles to threaten anyone who comes near. That's what a Danish television crew found out when they tried to investigate what this ship was doing by pulling closer to it in their own small boat. You can see crew members walking around on the deck. I think they're watching us. There's two men staring at us. Wow, they're looking at us. This is really a strange situation. Almost a tense situation. They're looking at us. The journalists were part of a year-long joint investigation and documentary series by national broadcasters of Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Finland. It's called Putin's Shadow War. Thanks to their work, we've just learned a lot more about these Russian ships, which may spend some time legally fishing or doing oceanographic research, but are also surveilling and mapping Western pipelines, underwater cables, oil and gas infrastructure, wind farms, and military exercises. Osa Östensen is a researcher and professor with the Royal Norwegian Naval Academy. We have to be aware that they are probably doing reconnaissance right now for both military operations, conventional operations, and hybrid type of operations that they might carry out in the right context. So it's more building a repertoire of means to use in the case that the situation would escalate, a military confrontation would be looming. 
While that's not entirely new information, it's been happening for decades, the extent of the apparent espionage may still shock many. The journalists tracked years of movements by about 50 ships and learned in that process that there actually may be hundreds of vessels moonlighting as spy ships. One in particular caught their eye, the Melkart 5. It's officially a fishing trawler, but it crossed a major undersea cable off the Svalbard archipelago in Norway 130 times just before the line was cut. Terje Aunavik, who works in shipping logistics, says seeing a ship cross back and forth and back and forth like that over one area is certainly suspicious. We voiced over Aunavik's original Norwegian remarks. When I saw it, I knew it couldn't be a coincidence. It's a completely illogical movement pattern for a trawler. There may have been an insane amount of fish there, but still, passing over a limited area more than 130 times. I'm no fisherman, but it doesn't look like regular trawler activity. And this was just a few months before a higher-profile incident, the sabotage of the Nord Stream gas pipelines in September of last year. That compelled NATO and the European Union to step up their cooperation, defending crucial infrastructure with more air and maritime surveillance. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. We have established now a cell at the NATO headquarters to coordinate efforts by NATO allies. And we have tasked our military authorities also to provide advice on how we can further strengthen our protection of undersea infrastructure, pipelines, uh, cables, internet connections, which speak about thousands of kilometers. And of course, it is extremely important to be able to protect this. This is something which is high on the NATO agenda. While sanctions on Moscow for its war on Ukraine have reduced the access of Russian ships to North Sea waters, Norway still has three harbors open to them for legitimate activities like refueling, landing fish and repairing ships. But some experts say Russia doesn't deserve this privilege anymore. Ustensen is one of them. We could set an example and say that these ships are not allowed to sail in Norwegian waters or to use Norwegian harbors anymore. I think there are some room for action there, definitely. While the Russian government denies the allegations of spying, Ossa Istensen says the draining of Moscow's military resources in Ukraine and Vladimir Putin's desperation to distract attention from that may make this type of hybrid attack on Kyiv's allies increasingly attractive. That whole situation we're in just really makes hybrid-type attacks or unconventional attacks, attacks or sabotaging our infrastructure, that type of thing, a lot more likely in a way, because that would make sure that you actually harm someone without it being declaration of war necessarily. In the last month alone, both Norway and Sweden have kicked out Russian embassy officials, accusing them of being intelligence agents. Losing these assets on the ground may make seaborne spying even more crucial for the Kremlin. Terry Schultz, DW, Brussels. Want to know how to best arm yourself against information warfare? Well, we'll be bringing you the answer in just a minute. But in the meantime, I'm Kate Laycock in Germany and you are listening to Inside Europe.
Two tactics used in information warfare are disinformation, so the deliberate spreading of false information, and fake news, propaganda and disinformation masquerading as real news. But how to tell what's real and what's not? Well, in Norway, a team of fact-checkers believe that they have found a winning formula. Lars Bavanga met up with them in Oslo. Right now I'm working on a, a, the climate project. Turns out that 25% of Norwegians don't really believe that there's been any human cause for the global, global climate change. So Nikolai Freistadelebeck's computer screen is the biggest I've ever seen. But he needs the space. He's forever pulling up countless documents and websites to fact-check claims that have made it into the public discourse in Norway. And as you can see, I try and put every little thing that I find during my research that I use. So I link to every, every study I've been using. Nikolai works for Foktisk.no, an independent fact-checking site set up in 2016. Their editor-in-chief is Christopher Egerberg, an award-winning former investigative journalist. We fact-check claims that could be anything that is significant in the public debate in Norway. Claims from politicians, from bloggers, from news organizations... And if you are exposed for enough fact-checks, you will start to help people be more critical about how they navigate their newsfeed and and to start fact-check themselves. Nearly 30% of Europeans regularly come across fake news and in certain countries that rises to 55%, according to last year's Eurobarometer survey. Elsewhere in the world, the figures are worse. It's becoming customary for media organisations to have their own fact-checking team. Faktisk.no is different, though, explains Christopher Egerberg. This is quite a unique cooperation between the largest media companies in Norway. These are usually competitors, rivals. But uh, back in 2016, the discussion started how to cope with this phenomenon of fake news, disinformation and misinformation. Instead of doing this... On each other's turf, they started talking about how could we cooperate. Today, all of Norway's major news providers share the cost of running Faktisk.no. Once a fact-check article has been written, the most important thing is to get as many people as possible to read it. That's why we give away everything we do for free. Anyone can embed our fact-checks. It's even given away through the Norwegian wire service, NTB, even media, newspapers, organizations who is not part of uh, financing us can use our stuff for free. Now, the spread of disinformation is speeding up, also due to the rise of AI chatbots and image creators. So I've come to Startup Lab. It's a shared space for Norwegian tech startups to meet Maria Amelie from Factiverse. It's a company that aims to help both fact-checkers and ordinary people to rapidly decide what to believe of what they read and see. The amount of disinformation is growing, and especially with ChatGPT, and the new language models, we will be facing more of the, these challenges because now it's more than ever is easier to create new text. Maria and the Factiverse team have created a program that allows you to put in any text, including that created by AI chatbots, and within seconds get feedback on which information can be verified and what might be more dubious. 
You can either highlight a sentence or we can uh, you can go through the whole text with our claim detection uh, tool. So, so that's I'll... basically one click. It's a text about COVID, COVID-19 myths around surrounding that. And uh, some of the sentences have changed colour. So yeah. have been highlighted. What what's, what the colours mean? So uh, we are highlighting some sentences green because they are correct and then some sentences uh, red for example the COVID-19 vaccines are unsafe because drug companies created them quickly is incorrect statement based on historical data that we have found there are 11 sources that are disputing this and then you can click on the box and then you get a list of many other relevant articles that are disputing this claim so basically this is doing all the fact checking for you and then you can if you want to delve further yeah. into it and yeah. fact check the fact checks. Exactly. Back at factisk.no, the fact checkers are already applying a certain level of AI to help with their work, explains editor-in-chief Christopher Egerberg. We developed an AI tool identifying war machines for the war in Ukraine, where you can identify all different kind of APCs, tanks and, and other materials automatically where you use that. And also we use language models to identify and translate languages, which is really helpful when you get a, a viral video and you don't know what's said. I think AI could be a great tool to assist fact-checking, but I still think that to, to do real fact-checking, to do real journalism, you, you need a human at the end. Norway is on top of the Press Freedom Index, uh, very equalitarian society, high level of trust. I suppose being a fact checker in China or even the States might be a bit, bit harder. We are very fortunate to be fact checkers in Scandinavia and in Europe at all, because our fellow fact checkers around the world are being prosecuted, are being challenged by the government, are being jailed uh, for doing their work and in some countries even killed for doing their work. We are enjoying freedom here, which we should value and, and try to inspire the others and, and support the others as good as we can. The US elections, the pandemic and now the war in Ukraine has shown that fact-checking is necessary and will continue to be so. To help safeguard future generations' ability for critical thinking, the team at factdisc.no have also launched a teaching platform for schools to teach children and young adults how to be source-critical. Lars Bivanger, DW, Oslo. And whilst we're on a techie theme, the French Parliament has taken up a measure that would give courts the power to ban parents from posting photos of kids online. This comes as a poll just published in France shows that for thousands of parents, sharing their lives with their children on social media has become a serious and sometimes even very large source of income. In Paris, John Lawrenson reports on the rise of the parent influencer. A family speeds down a snowy alpine slope on a sled pulled by huskies. The Cordier family takes pretty cool holidays, cycling in Barcelona, sand dune tobogganing in Brazil. Thanks, says the mother Stéphanie, to her blog Famille et Voyage, Family and Journeys, and her posts on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube. 
I've set up partnerships that allow me to have more content, so I'll approach tourist offices or activity providers to see what they'll exchange for a mention on my blog if I like the service they provide. So if there's a service or an activity I don't like, I just won't mention it at all, because we're in the framework of a partnership after all. But if I do like the thing, I'm very happy to speak about it and recount the real experience we had. Scuba diving in Bora Bora, for example. Cordier's blog posts get 17,000 hits, she says, the thin end of quite a thick French parent influencer wedge. Guillaume Doquitonon is co-founder of an influencer marketing company called Reach that analyzes data it receives from TikTok, Instagram, etc. He says France has 4,000 parent influencers, more than any other European country, and their impression, number of hits basically, rose 22% last year. On this field, word of mouth has always been really strong. There are lots of parents advising to buy this or this product because it has been useful for them. And as uh, influencer marketing is actually the next generation word of mouth, it's normal that it's increasing and it's a strong part of the influencer marketing ecosystem. But some warn of dangers. Thomas Romer is president of a citizens group called the Observatory of Parenthood and Digital Education that just commissioned a poll about parent influencers. He's in favour of legislation, a raft of measures that has already received the unanimous approval of the lower house of parliament, the National Assembly, will, if passed into law, take parents' right to publish photos of their children away from them if they post pictures that undermine their dignity. It will also make successful parent influencers draw up modelling contracts for their children. If they fail to do so, they or their commercial sponsors could incur 75,000 euro fines. For certain enfants, ils sont tout à fait conscients some children are quite aware of the fact that they contribute to the family finances, which, when you think about it, is a bit of an inversion of roles, as traditionally it's the parents that provide for the family rather than the children. For some children, this can be a weight to bear. The poll he commissioned showed that for about half of France's parents' influences, social media revenue has become their only income, while 4% have hit the jackpot, making over €50,000 a month. John Lawrenson, DW, Paris. Wait until my kids found out that I found a way to monetize them. That's all we've got time for this week. The programme was produced by me, Kate Laycock, with help from Nick Martin and sound engineer Thomas Schmidt. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany. <laughs> <laughs>